right, folks, welcome to Pickaxe and Roll, brought to you by Superbook Sports. I'm your host, Ryan Blackburn, at NBA Blackburn on Twitter, part of the Mile High Sports Podcast Network, and I am excited, well, not really excited today, let's be honest. It's uh, recording this on a Sunday night, following uh, a long day of football, but at the beginning of this day in the morning, Serbia and Italy played in the round of 16 for Eurobasket, one that many expected Serbia to breeze through. And it didn't happen. Serbia gets upset by Italy in this game, 94-86. to The Italians just could not miss a three. It was unbelievable to watch, and they just kept bombing away. Serbia did not respond. Nikola Jokic responded. He was very good. The rest of the Serbians, not so much. And we're going to talk about it. We'll talk about that in the first segment. Second segment, we're going to talk about what we learned about Nikola Jokic at Eurobasket. And then third segment, we're going to talk about the pressure index. What I mean by that, I'm writing an article and it will be posted on Monday morning. Make sure to go check that out when you do. Uh, This is about the most, the players with the most amount of pressure that is being placed upon them in the 2022-23 season. Who is feeling the most heat? Which players have to perform? And so that should be a fun segment towards the end of this. But for now, Let's focus on Serbia. Let's focus on Nikola Jokic. It was unfortunate. Serbia, they led for probably the first two and a half quarters of this game until Italy kind of came back and really equalized uh, middle to late third quarter, if I'm not mistaken. Serbia was playing pretty well, but Italy was just making their outside shots pretty consistently. Nikola Jokic played a very, very good game. 28, uh, close to 29 minutes played, scored 32 points on just 14 shots. And the reason is because he made two out of his three three three-pointers and made 14 out of 15 from the line. He was incredible in terms of his shooting efficiency, and that was just a massive performance that kept Serbia ahead of this game for a long time. Unfortunately, didn't get a lot of help. He had 13 rebounds, he had four assists, he had two steals and a block. He did have four turnovers, and those were key, but he was plus 11 in his 28 minutes and 41 seconds. That means in just over 11 minutes that he wasn't on the court, basically all the time that Nikola Milutinov was on the court, his backup center, Serbia was a minus 19 in just over 11 minutes. They absolutely blew the game. And it came in the minutes where Jokic wasn't on the floor. Vasa Micic, not a good game today. He was one of eight from three and just could not do the right things offensively, even though he had eight assists, had three turnovers, was five of 14 from the field, one of eight from three, and just wasn't good enough. And the rest of the shooting for the Serbians was not good enough either. Uh, Marinkovic shot the ball well. Kalinic shot the ball well from the outside. But the rest of the group, uh, Lucic, 0 of 3. Uh, actually, Jagodic Karica also shot the ball well. But Micic was 1 of 8. Lucic was 0 of 3. Guterich was 0 of 4. And then Yaramaz was 0 of 1. Those shots dragged down their three-point percentage enough that they could not keep pace with Italy. Italy hit 16 threes, and that really was the difference in this game because Italy won by eight. Serbia hit just 10, even though they went 24 of 28 from the line uh, based off of what Jokic did. They just could not get it done. And what they were doing on the defensive end was something that, or on the offensive end, was something that they had been doing to other teams on the defensive end for much of this tournament. Italy turned them over 16 times. Italy themselves committed just seven turnovers. The precision and the execution and everything that Serbia had been showcasing during the group stage, it completely fell apart in this game. I'm not sure what the reason was, Italy does not have good defensive personnel, but they do have some players that are capable of getting their hands on steals and and making sure that they put themselves in good positions where they can take charges and things like that. Now, that should not be an excuse. It absolutely shouldn't be. 
I saw a lot of people uh, questioning Nikola Jokic's defense in this particular one. And to be clear, he does have some definite defensive weaknesses. But I was just really disappointed in this game by the Serbian perimeter defense. Their rotations were slow. They would not close out. Anytime they tried to close out hard, they would get blown by. And every time they closed out short, Italy would shoot the three. And they went 16 of 38 as a result. They absolutely bombed away from three. They shot nine more threes than they did than they shot twos. And that was the way for them to win this game. They had to bomb away. And it's one of the things that we learned about Nikola Jokic at Eurobasket. I'll save that for the second segment, but Jokic himself was very, very good in this game. Like I said, 32 points in 29 minutes, plus 11. His efficiency, uh, the metric that they use in international basketball, was plus 41, which is one of the best performances in the entire tournament. It's Jokic's second performance above 40. It just wasn't enough, though, because Italy could not miss. And that's on the coaching staff. That's on the rotations around them. And it's on the minutes where Jokic was sitting anyway, where Milutinov scored two points and was minus 19, despite the fact that he had a massive size advantage against the Italian centers. Whether it was uh, Melli or any other player, he had the advantage and could not take advantage. He was taking mid-range jumpers today for some reason, rather than trying to get into the paint. It was just a very odd framework. In addition, when Serbia was losing the lead, kind of going down uh, that fourth quarter where, where they were really letting go of the rope, the game was tied, then the game was in Italy's favor, and it just kept going that direction until about the six-minute mark where Jokic is then inserted back into the game. But he's already sat for six minutes in a 40-minute game, uh, six minutes in a row, excuse me, and he had lost some of his... Uh, uh, some of his rhythm. He gets blocked by Nicola Melli on the next possession. I think he commits two turnovers down the stretch as well. And despite the fact that he had been fantastic up until that point, the teammates just let him down. Like That's straight up what it was. And it's too bad because they had been playing so well throughout the group stage. But the first opportunity that they had where it was a win or go home game, they lost. And that's just kind of how these things go. Serbia's out. Slovenia stays in. France stays in. They were very close to being eliminated, France was, but uh, they go through in overtime. Giannis played really well in the Greece win. Uh, Slovenia advanced on Saturday. They're going to play again, I think, tomorrow, Monday. But it should be interesting to see which team takes on uh, the new favorites or takes on the, the moniker of the new favorites, because Serbia clearly was the favorite in this tournament because they didn't just have Jokic. One of the allures for this game and for, for, for this Serbian national team was that they had two MVPs. That's too bad because Micic just didn't play like one today. And he wasn't the only one. I don't want to put it all at his feet. The defense was bad all around. Giving up 94 points when defense has been your calling card for much of this tournament is horrible. And they should feel bad. That's tough because I know folks in Serbia really wanted this. I wanted this for them. I wanted this for me. I wanted to see Jokic be able to uh, get a medal. I believe that's how they classify these things and how they award it. Him getting a medal would be really cool. A gold medal would be especially cool. Unfortunately, he's going to have to go home. Another kind of layer to this, though, is that had Jokic continued playing, he would have been playing all the way up through September 18th. He would have had an extra three games, quarterfinal, semifinal, final, probably some very intense matches where he's playing high minutes and can't come off the court. Clearly, in this game, the minutes where he was off the court were horrible for Serbia. So he would have been playing a high number of minutes, and there's a high chance for injury in those cases, or at least 
excessive fatigue. Now, rather than been, rather than coming over uh, back to the United States to do media day on September 26th, rather than having just about a week in between his final game and coming over, he'll have two weeks. So it gives him an extra week of rest. I don't hate that. Selfishly for the Nuggets, it sucks for Serbia. But for Nuggets fans, just know that Jokic has been great. He played extremely well. And now he's coming home. It was a good showing for him. An unfortunate showing for Serbia. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk more about what we learned about Nikola Jokic at this Eurobasket experience. But first, this podcast, as you know, it's brought to you by Superbook Sports. Everybody, football is back. We just had a fantastic day of football on this Sunday, and nobody is more excited than your friends at Superbook Sports. If you're looking for a place to bet the upcoming Broncos versus Seahawks game, Superbook is bringing Vegas-style wagering to the palm of your hands, and now they will match 100% of your first bet up to $1,000, no matter if the bet wins or loses. You don't have to be at the stadium every fall or... (laughs) Hold on. You don't have to be at the stadium to enjoy football this fall. Visit Superbook.com or download the Superbook Colorado app right now and start getting in on all of the action. Visit Superbook.com for terms and conditions. Gambling problem call 1-800-522-4700. Ryan Blackburn here. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. If you can, it would be awesome if you could rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast Five Stars on Apple Podcasts. Uh, I saw a couple new ratings come in, so everybody, thank you for that, for doing that. It definitely doesn't take too long, uh, but would really appreciate it if you just hop on the Apple Podcasts app. That is the easiest way to do it. All right, let's talk about Nikola Jokic a little bit more in depth. Uh, It's too bad that Serbia was knocked out, but we did get eight games over the course of both the World Cup qualifiers, as well as the group stage and this one uh, bracket elimination game. We got a window into what Nikola Jokic looks like this summer. And I think it's pretty clear, based off of what he's shown, that he's as skilled and dynamic as ever. He looks great. There are a lot of ways... I think that people can look at this. Some of the ways that he struggled in this tournament uh, were more of the uh, kind of normal Jokic ways in where he struggles. It's the quickness on the perimeter. It's contesting shots at the rim. Things like that. Things that he can't really control. But on the offensive end, he just takes over games on the interior perhaps better than he ever has. He did have a size mismatch in most of these games that definitely played a part. Like, in this game in particular, Nicolo Melli, that's just an unfair matchup. uh, Despite the fact that Nicolo Melli really battled in this game and had some good defensive plays. Against the Netherlands, that was another unfair game where it just was not going to work for them. And Jokic, to his credit took advantage of those situations and put his team in a really good position. In this tournament, he's shot, I think, above 60% from the field now. But the efficiency overall, its the true shooting, I'm sure, is over 70%. I'm sure. It might be close to 75 at this point. Because the baskets that he's making, uh, he's started to lock in on his free throw shooting. Again, he went 14 of 15 in this important game. Two of three in an important game. And he really showed up. He really showed up in a way I think some people questioned his ability to get off a whole bunch of shots. There are definitely reasons to be hesitant about his overall offensive profile and whether he can carry an offense from as, as a scorer completely. But this Italian or this Italy game, it really showed to me that he has this gene in him that's not going to go away now. At this stage, 
when you ask him to lock in, he's going to lock in. There were a couple of plays in this game, including in the fourth quarter, where Jokic made some absurd shots. One of the threes that he hit was on a fast break, and it was pretty clear that the Italian defender was going to offer up a take foul. And he crosses half court and rises up into a shooting motion just as the take foul is committed. And he's done this before in the at the NBA level, and rarely does he get the actual shooting foul out of it, despite the fact that he's often in a shooting motion. But this time he got the shooting foul, and it was a big deal because he made the freaking basket. He made a three, banked it off of the backboard, off of the square, and it was an and one. It was a four-point play, one that he converted. It's just very impressive to watch him. He had another play where he was just getting fouled. He got fouled uh, before he get up a shot, and then he threw up a floater and bounced it off of the shot clock above the backboard, and it dropped through the net. It was like a normal shot for him, stuff that he does. Bones Highland commented on the after the game. And it was basically like, yeah, he does this all the time in practice. That's crazy. He's crazy that a player like that can be in his bag to that level. The offense is unbelievable with him. I do have a couple of concerns, and they're not really concerns. They're just things to monitor. Number one is post entries. A lot of times... When he's posting up, everybody loves to blame the post-entry passer if there is a turnover that is committed. If Jokic gets the post position, but then sometimes he struggles to hold off the post defender. And that defender comes around on the entry pass and tips the ball away. And then there's a turnover. And a lot of people, they say that it's the post-entry passer's fault. And sometimes it is, but it isn't always their fault. And there are a couple of times, even today against Italy, where those turnovers, those live ball turnovers, were because of great hustle plays by Nikola Melli and because Nikola Jokic wasn't doing a good enough job of holding off position, making sure that he caught the basketball. That is not the fault of the post-entry passer. That's Jokic. And sometimes, like, it's just this minor detail. But there have been a lot of times, especially last year, where the shooting wasn't good enough to truly space the floor, where Jokic could not get the basketball late in games because the Nuggets were struggling to enter the ball into the post. Sometimes, like against Cleveland, I remember this game vividly. On the road, Cleveland was fronting him with, I think, Jared Allen or Kevin Love. And the other one of those guys was on the backside, like right in the middle of the lane, just waiting for that pass to be entered in. And it was an impossible angle that nobody would have been able to throw to. But Jokic was struggling to make himself available in those situations. There are times where Jokic struggles to make himself available and struggles to hold off the post defender. And so I just monitor it. The other thing is that sometimes he just forces passes. The pass isn't there. He gets on the move, especially when he's not looking. He just assumes that something is going to be open, and then he'll make the pass, and it's not open. And it doesn't necessarily click with him in those important situations that the pass isn't available. That happened today. Uh, Simone Fontecchio, he picked off a pass, uh, basically set Jokic up the entire way. It was a pick and roll. Jokic on the short roll, he tries to kick it out to the corner. Fontecchio, he read it the entire way and picked it off. And that's all on Jokic. That's because he wasn't looking and he didn't really see where the defense was being set up. In some of those situations, he just has to shoot. He wants to make the extra pass. He's wired that way where he has to make it. And yet sometimes... The best thing for him is just to take the contested shot because he's Nikola freaking Jokic and nobody can stop him. Some of those other shots, they prove it. His field goal percentage in these games, it proves it too. In games like this where Serbia did not make their outside shots, at least not enough to stay with with Italy, 
this was a big, big problem. So I'd be uh, at least monitoring that. I don't think it's going to be as much of an issue for Denver this year because they have better shooters than Serbia does. But we're going to see. Maybe this persists. And then the other thing, because offense isn't it. Like it's offense. Jokic is still probably the best offensive player in the NBA. He was able to cobble together a very, very impressive offense against the Warriors, despite the fact that he was going up against Draymond Green and a defense that just did not respect anybody else on the court. It was impressive what he was able to do. But the defensive side, it still remains a concern to me. Joker was very good defensively against Greece. He did some great things against Giannis specifically, where you have that targeted matchup, you're preventing shots at the paint, and Jokic did a great job in a win-or-go-home situation. That was only that was one of only two really good-to-great defensive games he had in this tournament. There was another game where he had four steals and two blocks. It was absurd what he did. That was the only other one. Over this eight-game stretch, the two World Cup qualifiers, five group stage games, and one elimination game, he was average to below average defensively. Now, some of that is just going 70% in the group stage. It's just not necessarily trying that hard. It's not the most important thing when you're always up 20 to 30 points. But his rebounding was kind of meh throughout this game and throughout this tournament. There were times where he really impressed, and there were times where he wasn't able to collect defensive rebounds especially. But the biggest problem is that teams have figured out how to attack Jokic defensively. They figured out exactly what you need to do, which is have elite perimeter shooting, or at least good perimeter shooting, something that the opposing team has to res- or that Serbia or the Nuggets has to respect. And you couple that with slashes to the rim, athletic players that can take Jokic one on one that can get him into space, and that can create shots for themselves off the dribble. Teams have done that consistently at Jokic during these last eight games, and he hasn't really done anything to dispel the notion that he's a bad defender. He's a good defender. Let me just reiterate that. He's a good defender. There are things that he does in the passing lanes, as a rebounder, uh, as a post defender, that very few players can do. The problem, though, is that in these high-pressure situations, the playoffs in the NBA, an elimination game in Eurobasket, opposing teams are going to attack him, and they're going to space him out, they're going to have him guard in space, and they're going to create open shots. That's borne out over the course of these past four or five years. That's just how teams are going to attack both the Nuggets and Serbia. Nicolo Melli did not have a great game in this one, especially offensively. Defensively, he was as good as you can really realistically be against Nikola Jokic. But on offense, he went he had 21 points, 7 of 18 from the field, 4 of 9 from 2, 3 of 9 from 3, and 4 of 4 from the line. But he was a very, very important piece. And the reason why was because he spaced the floor, and forced Jokic out into space, where Jokic did a reasonable job, but opposing or the rest of the Serbian team had to sink down into the paint because Jokic wouldn't be able to get back there if somebody got past him. So the so Serbia has to help in that situation. They have to aid Jokic in the paint, which leaves the weak side open for three. Sometimes it leaves the strong side open for three. Now, Serbia was not disciplined. The Nuggets themselves have had problems defensively, especially with their discipline on the perimeter around Nikola Jokic, and it could make him look bad. I think it made him look bad today. Like, he wasn't really that bad. He was still plus 11. Italy hit a lot of shots, and they hit some shots over him, but for the most part, it was other people. I want to make that clear. But Joker still couldn't really keep up on the perimeter when they attacked him. And he certainly wasn't the only one. He wasn't the worst defender. I thought Micic was horrible. It was just a horrible game 
for Micic defensively. And Kalinic and Marinkovic were also bad defensively. Serbia did not have a good game. Serbia did not figure this out. And they should have been able to. Surprised that they couldn't. And like I said, this isn't a Joker-specific problem, but it is a problem with traditional centers. It's a problem with guys that can't switch. It's a problem with players that can't keep up on the perimeter and play that realistic style of basketball that can protect those shots around the arc. These teams were going to be able to bomb away from three. The Warriors themselves, they might be in a different class than everybody else because they have maybe two of the best shooters of all time. But this also happened in the Portland series. It's also happened in the Phoenix series. It's also happened in the Utah series. It's also happened even in the Lakers series, where you have LeBron and AD going pick and roll, especially when they're at the four and five. And then you've got guys like Danny Green, KCP, Alex Caruso, players like that spacing around. And just Denver at that point couldn't do anything about that. And they couldn't really do anything in any of these series. All of these teams have had success against Joker. And the Nuggets have to solve that problem. Jokic has to solve that problem. It's one of the reasons why I have him pretty high on the pressure index this year, which I'm going to talk about in the next segment. But I just want to make this clear, that the Nuggets have to solve this problem or at least mitigate it enough so that it doesn't cripple their championship chances. They've added good perimeter defenders. They should be able to do it. They have enough perimeter defensive talent between Bruce Brown, KCP, Aaron Gordon, Jamal Murray's a decent defender uh, to good. Michael Porter, we're going to see about him. Hopefully he's better than when he left. Other players can fill the gaps as well, whether it's Zeke Naji, Jeff Green. We'll see about Bones Highland, but Christian Brown, Davon Reed, they should be able to play defense as well. But in order for the Nuggets to solve this problem, Jokic has to be good too. If he's not good as a perimeter defender, defending in space, making sure that opposing teams don't get wide open threes, then Denver will never win a title. It's simple as that. So Jokic, he has to improve. I didn't see improvement in this stretch. We're going to need to see some improvement throughout the year. We'll see. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to wrap up with the pressure index. We will be right back. everybody final segment on pickaxe and roll thank you so much for tuning in let's talk pressure index let's talk uh this is an article that i'm going to put out on monday morning i hope you read it i took some time to share my thoughts in more detail on that particular article and i think it's a good premise where i wanted to ask the question who is feeling the most pressure who's feeling the most uh who is the most to prove, basically. And there's one player that stands out above all others, but we're going to wait on that. We're going to go through the entire roster here real quick. I prescribed a number from 1 to 10 that I'm calling the pressure index. A 1 means the indicated player has next to nothing to prove next season. A 10 means the player is about to embark on an all-or-nothing season. If they're successful great. If not, the world is ending. Everybody's going to mostly fall in the middle of 1 and 10, but we're going to talk about why. In the little to no pressure category, five of the 17 players show up, including all three rookies. Colin Gillespie gets a 1, Peyton Watson a 2, Christian Brown a 3. 
Brown is probably going to play a little bit more than those other two. So he has to show some stuff. Colin Gillespie has no pressure on him. He broke his leg. It sucks. He's going to get an opportunity from Denver to rehab his injury, to show that he deserves to play again. And they're going to give him the resources and the time necessary to heal from a freaking broken leg. I've been told that too, by the way. Peyton Watson gets a two. Not quite no pressure. He has to show at least a little something. But Denver has also said that it's going to be a two-year plan with him. So give him some time. Also in this category, Ish Smith and Jeff Green. Ish gets a two. Jeff gets a three because he's most likely going to play. Ish Smith is going to be a third string point guard. He will play when either Bones Highland or Jamal Murray sits. Maybe he'll play a little bit more beyond that, but I can't really see it. Denver has their plan at point guard. It doesn't really include Ish. Next category. These guys are starting to feel the heat. DeAndre Jordan, KCP, Vlako Chanchar, Jack White, and Bones Highland. Now let me explain. DeAndre Jordan gets a four. He's in this category. He's not quite in the other veteran category with Ish Smith and Jeff Green because Jordan, he actually is in the he's in the process of falling out of the league. His role has shrunk drastically. There are certain things that he just can't do anymore. But he is Denver's only backup center, at least traditional backup center. So there could be a role for him if he earns it and if he deserves it. Now, Denver might still try to foist him in there anyway because they just need a traditional five, but I have to think that he feels a little bit more pressure than Ish or Jeff Green because there is a possibility they could be in the lineup as opposed to the likelihood that he isn't. KCP gets a five. Uh, similar to DeAndre Jordan, his story is mostly written in this league. He's clearly a steady 3 and D contributor, but he is going to start He's going to take on those tough perimeter assignments. Uh, Denver, they're probably not going to put Jamal Murray on those guys. Definitely not going to put on Porter. So they're going to probably alternate between KCP and Aaron Gordon. And if it's a guard, most likely it's KCP. He's going to have to be good. But even if he isn't, everybody in the league still views him as a steady 3 and D contributor, and he just got an extension too. Vlaco, he gets a five, as does Jack White, actually. And the reason why those guys are at five and not a little bit lower, which I think everybody would expect, is because Vlaco, he did get an extension. But the rest of his contract is non-guaranteed. Denver can cut him. Denver can go away from him. He has to prove that he's capable of playing in this league. He's going to feel that pressure. Now, he had the major injury last year. In previous years, he was kind of buried on the depth chart. This year, he's really not. Like, there's definitely an opportunity for him to play over a Zeke Nagy, over a Jeff Green, and if he do, or maybe even over Davon Reed. And if he does play at any of those other positions, then maybe he can start penciling himself in as a rotation player as opposed to a deep reserve where he's been locked for the majority of his career. Jack White, he's an older two-way contract. This is basically his one opportunity. Maybe another team gives him an opportunity, but given that he's older, most teams are going to want young players on their two-way contracts. It's one of the reasons why Nuggets fans in particular were hoping that a guy like Adonis Arms would get that contract from Denver because it's a larger home run type swing. Jack White, more steady, but if he is more steady, he needs to prove it this year. So he gets a five as well. And one more in this category is Bones Highland. He also gets a five. He does have, like he could be up to a six or even a seven. I'm giving him a five because though he is going to play a major role for this team, he does have a long runway. His rookie season gave him some runway so that if he struggles a little bit, Denver isn't just going to automatically go away from him for the entire future. Like they still believe in him and they will continue to believe in him even if he struggles a little bit. He proved enough 
in his rookie season that they should have faith. There is a possibility, though, that he struggles. And so he gets to be in this category at a 5 out of 10, which I think is fair. Next up, starting to get pretty hot. It's getting pretty hot in here for six players. Aaron Gordon, Bruce Brown, Jamal Murray, Zeke Naji, Davon Reed, and Nikola Jokic. Starting with the vets here, Aaron Gordon and Bruce Brown each get a six. These guys, they've earned their contracts. They're still pretty young in the league uh, in terms of kind of long-term progression. But Aaron Gordon is a veteran. His story is close to written in terms of who he is, but there is a possibility that he can convert himself into an elite role player as opposed to just an average starter. I think most people view him that way as opposed to a really elite role player. And if he did transition into that role, I think that would do a lot for his reputation. To date, he has not proven himself, I don't think, as a strong starter, especially in the playoffs. If he were to perform better in this next season, there would be a lot of improvement for his reputation. Whether that means anything to him, I don't know. But I'd like to see him get the proper credit. Now, Bruce Brown, he's technically on a two-year deal, but it's a one-year deal with a player option. So he is playing for money as opposed to Aaron Gordon, who's already locked up four years. Bruce Brown is on a one plus one. And this was kind of a gap year for him where it looked like he was going to pencil himself into a strong role with the Brooklyn Nets. That didn't happen, given that they just traded for Ben Simmons, who kind of plays a similar role at a much bigger body. So Bruce Brown is going to try to find a way to introduce his unique play style to another team. He has the opportunity to make himself invaluable to a team like the Nuggets or to other teams that are surely going to be watching him, knowing that he'll be on the market in all likelihood next season. If he plays well, if he's like a top reserve, or maybe he replaces KCP in the starting lineup at some points, maybe he replaces Michael Porter Jr. in clutch situations, there's a possibility that he earns himself a lot of money. But he has to prove that he is a starting caliber guard and not just kind of a gadget player. So he gets a six. Now Jamal Murray... He gets a seven. He's going to put this pressure on himself. It really isn't me or anybody else putting pressure on him coming off of an ACL tear. But given that the Nuggets just lost two seasons due to injuries, I think they're going to want Jamal Murray to get back to his best self as quickly as possible. They're not going to rush him. They're still going to want to ratchet it up a little bit as the season goes along. But if Murray isn't back to him being himself or close to himself by the playoffs, I'd guess that the Nuggets are a little bit concerned. I guess that maybe Murray's reputation at that point takes a little bit of a hit. If he doesn't perform to the level that he played in the bubble or maybe even his 2018-19 playoffs, then maybe things feel a little bit different in terms of whether Jamal Murray is untradeable for a team like the Nuggets. They might consider a different path. I don't think that's going to happen. I believe in Jamal Murray. But I think that there is at least the notion in people's heads that it could go that direction. And if the Nuggets falter again in what is perceived to be their best chance for a title season, they might make some sweeping changes. Next is Zeke Naji and Davon Reed. Those guys are each at a seven as well. Zeke, he's in his third season, and it would surprise me if this wasn't a big season for him, at least in kind of defining who he is in the NBA. I'm not sure I know. I think what he's proven to date is that he's a solid backup power forward, so that you can rely on him. He's 21 years old. Athletic enough, smart enough, strong outside shooter. They can plug him into a role and he'll be fine. However, you don't just want to plug a 21-year-old into a role. 
the 21-year-old is probably hoping to grow and improve and change his status in the NBA. I'm sure Zeke Naji wants to prove himself to be a starting caliber player. I'm sure that those are his aspirations eventually. Right now, he's not in a close position to do that. He has too many flaws in his game. His position isn't that well defined, but he has an opportunity at six foot nine, two forty, to expand his repertoire to become a small ball backup five. I think that that is his best position. I wonder if the Nuggets are going to use him that way. But either way, there's an opportunity for him to play major minutes off the bench this year. And if he takes advantage of it, maybe a team throws him a contract. Maybe he earns a larger salary going forward. Because he's in his third season and the Nuggets need to know what they have in him. Davon Reed, kind of the same thing. And kind of like Vlatko. He is in a stage where he got a minimum deal after playing on a two-way, after playing on a 10-day, after playing on on Exhibit 10. Davon has had to scrap and claw for everything, but he's not done scratching and clawing. The Nuggets gave him a minimum. In order for Davon Reed to pencil himself into an NBA rotation going forward, he needs to perform again. He needs to continue performing to show that his shooting was real that he can be a strong defender, and that he's helpful to who the Nuggets are. They can do this on a big stage. He didn't play in the playoffs last year because he was on a two-way contract. He might have been able to help. I don't think it would have made a difference in the series, but could it have made a difference in key possessions? Probably. And finally, Nikola Jokic. He's the last one in this category at an 8 out of 10. For all the reasons that I talked about in the second segment, Jokic has to prove that he can play defense, at least at the playoff level. He can play solid regular season defense. I have no doubt, zero, that the Nuggets can be a top 10 defensive team in the regular season this year. They don't have to be, but it would go a long way in proving that he can handle that in a defensive capacity uh, during the regular season. That would be great. Now, for Denver to really take the next step, he's going to have to find a way to translate that success into a playoff environment where teams are really trying to pick apart your weaknesses, where they're really trying to dig in and make him work every single time. The game plan on Jokic is that you tire him out because he has to do so much offensively. Now that Murray and Porter are back, maybe he doesn't have to do so much offensively and can do a little bit more on defense. That's the hope. If that's not the reality and he's still too tired and too slow in some instances, then it's going to be a long season. It's going to be a long off season and one where the Nuggets are going to have to ask very important questions. But he doesn't have the most pressure on him. That notion or that, uh, not notion, that honor goes to Michael Porter Jr., who at a nine out of 10 is the only player in the make or break category. He has lost two seasons to injury. Three, if you count his uh, freshman season at Missouri. Three out of his last five seasons, he's lost. Barely played. In In the three seasons, he's played a combined 12 games. In those other two seasons, he's been relatively healthy. In his rookie, his technical rookie season for Denver, he was pretty healthy. And in his sophomore season, his next year, 2020-21, he missed one game due to injury, one game due to rest. Actually, no, he missed zero games due to injury, one game due to rest, and 10 games due to health and safety protocols. He was very healthy the year before last. And so it makes it all the more painful when he went down. Because half the time he's been injured, but the other half he's progressed into a really strong outside scorer. Now, he does have deficiencies. But the first thing that he has to prove, that it's kind of make or break time for him, can he survive the season? This may not be a question that he can answer in just one year. It's going to be a question that he has to answer every single year for the rest of his career. The Nuggets can't feel like they have to wait on bated breath 
for him to be healthy by the end. They need him to at least be reliable. The next thing that he has to do is just progress as a player. He has deficiencies. He's shown that he can improve, and he really, really improved last year, or a couple years ago. He lost a year of development last season, and he needed that year so that he can improve as a ball handler, as a decision maker, as a defender, as opposing teams attacked him. He needed that season to improve. Now, it's likely that he's going to need another season to showcase and just generate some really strong improvement. Can he do it? Can he get better? Sure. Will he get better? I don't know. Not everybody does. Maybe Porter just is who he is, which right now is basically a souped up version of Duncan Robinson or Davis Bertans. That's not great. That's not a max player. The Nuggets need to know that he's more. They need to feel like they're comfortable with that or else he's going to get traded. And if they trade him from a position of weakness, trying to improve their roster or at least recover what is a championship window, they're going to be in a really tough time because they traded away all their other offensive pieces other than Bones Highland to surround the Murray-Jokic pick and roll with strong defenders. Maybe that's the way that they still have to go. But trading away Porter trades away Denver's trump card from an offensive perspective. Jokic by himself gets Denver into the conversation for top five offense. Murray and Porter, at the peak of their powers, are going to be a top five offense guaranteed. Murray, Porter, and Jokic is maybe top one. And we're going to see whether they can be, but they may just be unstoppable this year. If Porter stays healthy, if he works on his weaknesses, if everybody else around him kind of falls into place. But it really does start with Porter here, and that's why he's number one on this list. Nine out of ten on the pressure index, I think that is a fair placement. Before we go, I do want to say just a few words on the ringer's Jonathan Sharks. I didn't know Jonathan Sharks that well. If you don't know who Jonathan Sharks is, he's a fantastic writer, fantastic voice, podcast uh, folk, and Dallas Mavericks fan who got to experience the 2012 or the 2010 11 Dallas Mavericks season and learned so much from that. And he's just been fantastic. He's, he's a great, great human, great husband, great father. Unfortunately, he passed away due to cancer over the weekend. And it had been going on for a little bit here. Unfortunately, Charks has dealt with tragedy before in his life and his family is now in a really tough place. But I just really love what Charks was all about. He was all about basketball. It was all about the game. Even when he was in situations where people were like, hey, are you okay? Hey, how's everything else? All he wanted to do was talk the game. He was a true basketball junkie and one of the best people at it. His takes were always measured. He was abstract. He was a thinker. He was a great basketball individual, but also a really good human. And it made him so endearing to a lot of people in the basketball community, even people that didn't talk to him all the time. They knew that Jonathan Jarks was all about the right things, that he was a fantastic person. It came through in everything that he did. And it's going to be really sad for a long time without Jarks. He was fantastic for the ringer, did some great work. And his writing and his, like I said, his takes and his writing and his podcasting, his thought process was so artistic and beautiful about the game of basketball that it's tough to replace something like that. 
nobody will ever replace Sharks. It's going to leave a hole in a lot of people's hearts for a long time. And I'm really sad to see him go. But he was a fighter. His family made that very clear. His wife had been writing about the cancer that he had been undergoing. The treatments, the life situations. She'd been maintaining a blog. It was tough. Stuff to watch and tough to listen to. But they, there's a GoFundMe page that is associated with the Jonathan Sharks family. If Just look it up. I'm sure you'll be able to find it. Uh, it's raised over $160,000. And people have been outpouring their support for the Sharks family in the wake of this awfulness. So if you have the means, if you have the compulsion, uh, donate. It's a great way just to show your support as much or as little as you want to. He was truly one of the best. That is going to do it for this episode of Pickaxe and Roll, brought to you by Superbook Sports. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. I'll be back midweek, probably talk about the Atlantic Division. I think that's the last one I have to talk about. But for now, check out myohiosports.com. Check out all my writing. 20 questions still going strong. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. Talk to you guys very soon.